Good evening. Thanks, Andy, for leading. Let's just have a brief word of prayer before we begin to look at this passage. Heavenly Father, help us to turn our eyes to you now as we come and look at your um, perfect word, as we uh, come to uh, look at this passage that you spoke. Um, these are the very words of God. Lord, help us to, to understand it in that light and to try and apply these things to our lives now. In your name, amen. So the context for this section of the Sermon on the Mount and that we're going to look at tonight, and for the remainder of chapter 5, comes in the preceding four verses, and Steve looked at those last week. Basically, it's this. Jesus didn't come to throw out the law and all the prophets. He came to accomplish their ultimate purpose. See, there's no contradiction between Jesus, the law, and the prophets. The law and the prophets, which is the Old Testament, it points us to Jesus. It points us to the Messiah. Jesus didn't just repeat the words of the Old Testament or give us a different slant on what they may mean. He fulfills every single word. J.C. Ryle says this, that the Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. The saints in the Old Testament saw many things through a glass darkly, but they all looked by faith to the same Savior. Jesus tells the crowd that their righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the religious authority of the day. Otherwise, they won't be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying that the, the, the Pharisees and scribes' understanding and interpretation of the Old Testament was deficient. They weren't the authoritative interpreters. And because of that, the righteousness that they taught wasn't enough. It was deficient. And the reason was this, was because they didn't see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. They, they failed to recognize that it all points to him. They rejected him. Therefore, your righteousness needs to exceed theirs. See, we can't make heaven based on our own interpretation of what the requirements are. There are countless variations of, of what's required to make it in the kingdom of heaven in this world. Every single one of them, bar one, is deficient. We must understand what's required from the one to whom the Old Testament is pointing us to. Now, some of you may know that I'm a classical music geek. In fact, I'm just all-round music geek, to be honest. And I generally prefer the composers of the music that I listen to to be well and truly dead. I'm not interested in those that are alive, to be honest, because it's just not me. But among my top five composers of all, Rachmaninoff is always in there somewhere between one and five. He's always got a permanent spot. I just love his music, especially his piano music. Now, if you were to look at his piano music on the page, there's a lot going on. There's a melody um, in between the fistfuls of notes. There's, there's dynamic markings. There's tempo markings. There's phrase markings, etc., etc. There's lots of information to take in. Now, I'm not a decent enough pianist to get past even the first few bars of most of his music. 
But in the 1920s and 30s, Rachmaninoff, he recorded a big selection of his own works. And being the genius musician and pianist that he was, he plays his pieces exactly as he intended them to sound. And we get to hear this music that he wrote come to life exactly as it was designed to be heard by the composer himself. Every single note, every dynamic marking, every tempo change, every phrase marking is fulfilled. What we're seeing here in chapter 5 is the composer, Jesus Christ, bring to life what was written down and proclaimed long ago. The words of the law and prophets aren't just dry words on a page. Jesus shows us that they deal with the attitudes and intentions of the hearts, of our hearts. And not the least word, not even a stroke of a pen, will go unnoticed. Every last part of it is fulfilled in Jesus. So he now shows us what this looks like. And he begins in verse 21 by quoting a commandment. He says this, You have heard it said, you shall not murder. See, the people he's addressing, they're not ignorant. They knew the Old Testament law, and they knew at least something of the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes. So Jesus continues, he summarizes the Pharisees' teaching of this commandment, which in itself is um, a summary of other passages in the Old Testament. Whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. I don't think anyone here would disagree with that, would they? We'd all want a person found guilty of murder to face justice, to be locked away for life. Perhaps we'd, we'd go further than that and we'd say that you know, they deserve capital punishment, a life for a life. That's biblical, isn't it? I think every country in the world who finds a person guilty of murder would administer some kind of judgment on the guilty party. See, the Bible tells us that the reason murder is abhorrent is because we're made in God's image. And God alone has the authority to give and take away life. So you can imagine everyone listening to Jesus nodding their heads in agreement. They're going, yes, Jesus, we know. We know this teaching. We agree with this. But he continues. And his teaching, it now transcends what's gone before. He takes it to new heights. And he's fulfilling now the words that were given to Moses by God all those generations before. And just imagine the people in front of him who were nodding their heads only just a second ago, they must have turned from nodding their heads to just standing there open-mouthed. But I say to you, as the Son of God, who's been given all authority by the Father, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Seems a bit of a leap, doesn't it? Anger is now classed the same as murder. Surely that's a stretch too far. That's a, a bit close to home for us. See, what Jesus is doing is taking a behavior that seems so abstract. We've made it abstract. It's abstract from the vast majority of people, 
And he makes it personal to every one of us. He's making the act of murder personal to every one of us here tonight. That feels heavy. We must understand that God, he looks into our hearts and he sees every intention and every attitude. And that's what God is concerned about. See, our natural disposition is to distance ourselves from murder. Imagine if I asked you, are you a murderer? Firstly, I think you'd be absolutely outraged that I'd even ask that, such a question. And once you got over that outrage, you'd probably say something along the lines of this. To murder someone is unthinkable. I couldn't do that. It's evil. It's such a heinous thing to do. I could never possibly do anything like that. I could never unlawfully kill another human being. And I'm sure you'd be very sincere if you said that. Now, there have been loads of studies of convicted murderers to see what sort of traits um, that cause their behavior, anything that makes them different to the vast majority of other people. Scientists have scanned their brains to see if they can find anything unique, anything unusual that would point toward them being uh, behaving in this way. And back in the 19th century, it was believed you could tell a murderer or any criminal for that matter, just by examining their facial features. This is what Jesus says, that the murderer is no different to any one of us, ultimately, and that the essence of the act of murder is in every single one of us. Jesus is telling us that every one of us in this room has a capability within us to unlawfully kill another human being. And in effect, you can do it without even getting up off your chair. Let me explain it by telling you about a little old lady who used to come to where I work every Friday for a number of years. And she used to help out a bit with, with filing. And invariably during the Fridays that she came along, I'd, I'd end up talking to her. And during these weekly chats, she'd, she'd tell me about the goings-on of the street where she lived. She was a curtain twitcher extraordinaire. She knew everything about everyone on her street. But there was one neighbor just a few doors down from her that she'd taken a particular dislike to. One or two minor reasons. I think the, the main issue was he had a sports car with a bit of a throaty exhaust. And for some reason, that, that got her back up. And she said to me once after relaying the latest incident, this is what she said to me, sometimes I sit there thinking what it would be like to strangle him. He was this, he was a little old lady. She could barely hurt a fly physically. She wasn't even five foot. And she was committing murder in her heart without even getting up off her chair. Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So the word translated angry or anger here means a settled anger. It's a sort of anger that stews away inside you, that you'll, not, that you'll let fester away. It's a brooding bitterness against someone. Now notice who the anger is directed against. It's a brother, not an enemy 
or a direct threat to our existence? No, not at all. It's a brother. See, Jesus was speaking to Jews about being angry towards fellow Jews. So for us, it's applicable to the people we meet, the people we mix with, whether they be family, friends, or acquaintances, but especially fellow Christians. Isn't, isn't it often the case that the people we associate with are the ones that cause us the most annoyance? We perceive behavior as inconsiderate, or there's some sort of personality clash. Perhaps you work with someone and they work in such a different way to you that it's just really difficult to actually get anything done with them. And it's so frustrating. Whatever it may be, it can all lead very easily to a deep-seated loathing of that person. Jesus is saying that in God's eyes, even the person who has anger against someone and hasn't done anything about it or let anyone else know about it is in danger of judgment. 1 John 3 verse 15 says, Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. See, God looks into our hearts. And he sees every intention and attitude. And that's what God's concerned about. This is radical righteousness that Jesus is showing us here. You see, the problem with anger is if left unchecked, it doesn't end there. It leads to other destructive behaviors. See, brooding anger is just level one. Jesus goes on and he explains level two. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. So this anger now is built up. It's built up until the point it begins to spill out and it becomes obvious to the person it's directed towards. The word racker is like calling someone an idiot, calling someone empty-headed, you're calling someone thick. It's a Galilean expression of contempt towards another human being. You see, Jesus is showing that that sort of behavior, it doesn't come out the blue. It comes from a deep-seated and brooding bitterness directed against someone. You've got to the point where you've made that person useless in your mind. They're just a waste of space. In Acts 22, the Apostle Paul is in Jerusalem and he's been arrested by the Roman soldiers and he's about to be taken to the barracks when he's allowed to speak to the crowd of Jews. He explains to them who he is. He's a Jew from Tarsus. He's a student of Gamaliel. He tells them of his amazing Damascus Road conversion and the Lord's divine direction in his life after that. Then he tells them what the Lord said to him. Go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him up to this point. Then they raised their voices shouting, wipe this man off the face of the earth. He should not be allowed to live. Why did the crowd turn so quickly against Paul? Why were they prepared to listen to him one moment, but not the next? Because what 
had happened was what Paul had said had aroused the inner hatred that the Jews had for the Gentiles. And that inner brooding bitterness had boiled over and it ended up with them calling a fellow Jew worthless. A waste of space on this earth. Because Paul had the audacity to say that Gentiles would be admitted into the kingdom of heaven. To call someone worthless is a terrible thing. And it could cause you to be brought before the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. They could charge you with violating God's law. Leviticus 19 verse 18 says, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. See, the Sanhedrin, that ruling council, was filled up with Pharisees and scribes at the time of Jesus. And we know that their righteousness was deficient. Jesus has told us that. And if they ruled according to the correct interpretation of the Old Testament, this was the sort of behavior that would be brought to them and dealt with. Jesus means more than the Sanhedrin. He's telling us to consider the ultimate ruling council. See, when we stand before God's ruling council, which will be absolutely perfect and just in every single judgment, this is the very thing that will be ruled against. See, calling someone worthless, it's directly against God's law. The Bible tells us that each one of us has been remarkably and wondrously made. To reduce a fellow human being to a waste of space, that behavior will be judged before the ruling council of the Creator. And that judgment day has been fixed. There's a day coming when we're all going to be before that ruling council. Are you prepared for that day? See, there's a further level of this destructive behavior that Jesus exposes. He goes to level three. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now this brooding anger, it's broken out. It's called someone a waste of space. Now whatever remaining control is gone. And that a curse is now uttered against them. Proverbs tells us a person who does not control his temper is like a city whose wall is broken down. There's just no control anymore. Now Jesus, he reserved this word specifically to curse. He spoke a parable, parable of a rich young fool who planned to tear down his barns and build bigger ones to store all his crops and other goods. And the, this rich man, he was really pleased with himself. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? The man was cursed because he dismissed God from his thoughts completely. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This is what Jesus is saying. 
that the person who openly curses another person is liable to have that curse turned on themselves and to spend eternity under that curse in the fires of hell. You see, their behavior's got to the point where they're dismissing all thoughts of God from their minds. What a perilous position to be in. And Jesus has just opened up this one law and he's exposed every single one of us in the process. Can any of us here truly say, can we truly say that we've never allowed ourselves to be in any way angry or bitter or hostile towards another person? Can anyone, any of us say that? You see, the act of murder in its essence is in every single one of us. And one day we'll all be judged by God. We will face his court. And he has the keys to the fiery hell and the authority to condemn us there for all eternity. So what have you done to prepare for that day? See, God sees our hearts and he sees every intention and every attitude of them. But he doesn't end there. Jesus now shows us how to deal with anger. How to deal with it. And in the next four verses, he gives us a picture of what loving your neighbor looks like. See, that's the summation of the law and prophets. And we're shown two scenarios based on real life, and they're all about reconciliation. In the first scenario we see in verses 23 and 24, it's specifically talking about anger against someone close to us. Jesus is saying to the one who has been angry with his brother, reconcile yourself to him. Now Jesus' perfect righteousness, it far exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes. They were all about religious duty. They were all about showing themselves to, as good. Their outward deeds were good. And that's what their righteousness was based on. Jesus is saying this, that personal reconciliation takes precedence over religious duty. It's far more important. Why is that? Because it's no good offering your gift at the altar of the temple whilst knowingly being estranged from someone and have done nothing about it, nothing to resolve it. Why would God, who knows our hearts, accept your gift? So if you're at church tonight and you knowingly have unresolved issues with someone, especially with a, another believer, and there have been no attempts in any way to sort out the problem. Don't think being here swings it in your favor. Don't think that being here sorts out the problem. Personal reconciliation takes precedence in that case over religious duty. You're just doing what the Pharisees and the scribes would do. And our righteousness must exceed their righteousness. See, the Christian is to slander no one, to avoid fighting and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all 
people. This is the mandate that Jesus is giving us. Isaiah chapter 1, it gives us a, a pretty devastating picture of God's people. They're in full rebellion. God likens them to Sodom and Gomorrah. He hates their religious duty. It doesn't even reach their heart. Their offerings are useless. He won't listen to their countless prayers because their hands are covered with blood. This is his answer to them. This is what they need to do. Wash yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Be reconciled. Then they can come before him. Then he can say, come, let's settle this. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. Jesus is telling us we each have individual responsibility, not just to rein in our own anger, but to actively take steps to reconcile with those angry with us, even if they're in the wrong, even if it's not our fault. She will not be heard by God if we knowingly live unreconciled lives with those around us. We must We've got to take responsibility for these things. Effectively, he's saying your hands are covered with blood. We saw this in the church at Corinth. It was division filled. And Paul was very clear with them that those who carried on in in religious duty whilst unreconciled with each other were in grave danger. He was in particular reference to the Lord's Supper. He says, whoever eats bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Paul says, examine yourselves. Is your heart right? Otherwise, we eat and drink without recognizing the body and pour judgment on ourselves. It was so serious in the church at Corinth that people had become physically unwell. And some had even died. God had judged them. So we must take this seriously. Jesus is telling us to swallow our pride. Reconciliation is far more important than our outward status. You see, the Christian life is all about reconciliation. We're going to dwell with God. We're going to enjoy Him forever because of the reconciling work of His Son. We must be reconciled with our brothers and sisters and we must show gentleness to all people even if it means swallowing our pride. Even if they're in the wrong. So we come to the second scenario, verses 25 and 26. Jesus, rather than calling the person here brother, he calls them an adversary. Things have taken a more legal stance things have gone further than they ever should have done there's been no reconciliation and the situation has escalated to the point where it's got to be decided in court and the whole problem has been rooted in anger 
that hasn't been reined in. And in haste to get victory, the disagreement has been taken to court. And the intention is to inflict as much damage against the adversary as possible. Proverbs 25 verse 8 says, Do not go hastily to court. For what will you do in the end when your neighbor has put you to shame? See, there's a very real risk that that judgment will go against you. See, court brings all sorts of uncontrollable factors into play. It brings that grievance out into the public domain. It doesn't do anyone any good. In fact, what Jesus is saying here is it, it can has every potential to be completely ruinous. The outcome won't resolve anything. Instead, it will just cause ruin. And there was a famous debtor's prison in Southwark called the Marshalsea Prison. If you've ever read Charles Dickens's Little Dorrit, you'll know something about it. And whether you've read any fact or fiction about the place, it's clear that it was a terrible situation to find yourself in if you were in the Marshalsea prison. You didn't have to have major debts to be there. You, you could be in the Marshalsea for relatively modest debts. You know, you failed to pay the baker on time, and before you know it, wang straight in the Marshalsea. And people were crammed in these squalid rooms, and they had no way of paying off the debt. And whilst they were in prison, they were accumulating more debt. They were accumulating prison fees. So there was just absolutely no way they were ever going to get out. The debt was increasing. No way of paying it off. You'd be stuck there for the rest of your days. Jesus here is, is picturing a place similar to that Marshall C. debtor's prison. That same sort of practice happened back in those days and if you ended up in a prison like that there was no chance you'd get out how are you going to repay a debt that's accumulating if you have no means of income so to stop such a, a terrible situation happening resolve things with your adversary on the way to the courtroom don't let the situation reach court Otherwise, it won't end well. The situation must be dealt with whilst you still have the opportunity of resolving it. There's been a, a big libel case, hasn't there, called dubbed the Wagatha Christie, which has been in the news recently. Rebecca Vardy versus Colleen Rooney. Rebecca Vardy's lost. And not only is she paying her own legal costs, which apparently are three million pounds, but she's got to pay most of Colleen Rooney's legal costs, and that's about £1.5 million. So she's got to pay £4.5 million over a very petty disagreement that got out of hand. I know she's married to a footballer, but even those figures make you wince, even if you're a footballer, over something petty. Let's remind ourselves of the context in which this passage sits. Jesus has told us that not the smallest letter or even one stroke of a, a letter will pass away from the law and the prophets and that he came to fulfill the law 
and the prophets. And rather than looking at matching the outwardly righteous Pharisees to make it into the kingdom of heaven, our righteousness must exceed it. See, the heart issues behind the commandment, they've been exposed. And each one of us here tonight is guilty, in God's eyes, of the act of murder. If we leave this place unresolved, we're, we're an adversary of the one who fulfilled the law. We're an adversary of Jesus Christ himself. And there's coming a day when we'll stand before him. And not only will he be your adversary, but he'll be your judge as well. And he has the authority to cast your soul into hellfire where you'll be under God's wrath, under his judgment for all of eternity. How can we pay back our debt of unrighteousness before the eternally righteous and spotless King of Kings? See, none of us know when we will stand before the judge of heaven and earth. It might be tonight. It could be in decades from now. But if you're, you find you're his adversary on that day, it will be too late to do anything about it. This is what Jesus says. Agree with your adversary quickly. Agree with him that you've not kept his law. That your righteousness is deficient. That you've transgressed and you need to be made clean. If you come before him and you acknowledge your incapacity to meet his righteous requirements, he won't throw you into hell. Rather, he's just and willing to settle matters with you immediately on the way. He'll say, come, let's settle this. Though your sins are scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. Have you settled matters with the King of Kings? Proverbs 11.21 Be assured that a wicked person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will escape. See, we can achieve the righteous requirements of the law only by being in Christ. In Christ, we're the offspring of the righteous one. See, Jesus, he demonstrated his perfect righteousness on earth when facing all kinds of opposition. He remained spotless. He remained spotless when Satan tempted him for 40 days in the wilderness. He remained spotless when the Pharisees, they wanted to stone him for declaring that he and the Father, when he declared that he and the Father are one. See, when they tried to trap him with his teaching by bringing a woman caught in adultery to him, he remained spotless. He said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. They couldn't expose him. He exposed them. He remained spotless as his father poured out his wrath for our sin on him at Calvary. He was a spotless, sacrificial lamb, without blemish, without defect. 
See, God's law, it opens our eyes to our guilt. Charles Spurgeon said this, that the law is meant to lead the sinner to faith in Christ by showing the impossibility of any other way. If you really examine your heart, you'll know that there's absolutely no chance in and of yourself that you can keep God's law. You've got to turn to Christ and be the offspring of the righteous one because he's fulfilled it for you. Now anger is just one letter away from danger. We mustn't think we're we're too good to be affected by this law. We mustn't let anger rule our hearts. It only leads on to more and more terrible things. Instead, we must be honest with ourselves and with God that our righteousness falls short and to agree to, to settle the matter with him quickly on the way. We must settle matters with him every day. Keep our account short with him. We're going to sing to close. Come thou fount of every blessing. I'll just read the last verse to you. O to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above.
Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that he may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Amen.